Hey, this is Ian Olisa from Brooklyn Public Philosophers. I think Halloween is my favorite holiday. I like eating candy. I'm a big fan of creative costumes. That's most of it. But I also just think it's so weird. Like, why do we make children dress up in kind of scary, but also not really scary outfits and go door to door to take candy from people? Why do we carve faces into pumpkins and put candles in them? Why do you have a holiday that celebrates fear in this very particular way? Like, from the outside, I can only imagine how bizarre it seems. So, for today's episode, I talk with Lauren Ware, lecturer in philosophy at Kent University, about fear, what it is, how it shapes our understanding of risk, of danger, and when it makes sense. And yes, we talk about why Halloween is a thing. So stay tuned. You are listening to the spookiest episode of The Owl. Hi, Lauren. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? All right. All right. Thank you so much for doing this. So I figured we could start off by talking a little bit about how you got interested in your current line of research. So there's a lot of work that philosophers are, are doing on the emotions right now. So how did you how did you kind of find your way to that subject? Well, I, I wrote my PhD on Plato's Symposium, which is uh, the dialogue that's all about love, different kinds of love, different kinds of erotic love. Um, and I, I was really taken with this story that he tells about how love captures our attention and sustains our attention and motivates us to pursue different projects and different people um, that we wouldn't have pursued if we hadn't been kind of captivated by them in this way. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, but as I was finishing the PhD and thinking about jobs and, and everything, I, I wanted to figure out how plausible Plato's theory was in terms of contemporary theories of emotion and mm-hmm. uh, what, what contemporary philosophers are, are talking about when they're talking about emotions. Um, and that opened up this series of debates about law and emotion and how emotions are involved in uh, legal decision-making and moral decision-making. So questions like, um, do angry jurors give harsher penalties? Uh, is disgust something that we can legislate against? And um, should prisoners pay through their own sort of emotional suffering, through pain, um, and that's that's how I got to where I am uh, right now, looking at uh, political emotions. Cool, great. So I know one of the sort of intersections between work on the emotions and legal philosophy that you have written about uh, is the perception of risk. We're going to be talking mostly about fear today. So could you say something about how fear affects our perceptions of risk? Right. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting research being done about when we evaluate the riskiness of, you know, a, a new technology, or when we evaluate the riskiness of um, uh, an urban development. There's these questions about how emotions impact that risk assessment. Um, so I think it's really interesting to look at how negative or painful emotions like fear might get in the way of making a kind of accurate and responsible risk assessment and. One of the things that um, we can see about how fear impacts risk assessment is that when we're when we're afraid, we end up 
manifesting a bias for focusing on local details as opposed to global details. Um, I don't necessarily mean geographically, although that could make sense, but local details, just focusing on the task at hand as opposed to planning for the future. Mm -hmm. So one of the examples of, of how this might work uh, happened to me a couple of years ago where I, I was applying for a job. I had an interview for a job and it was at the same time as when I was teaching um, in the city, the next door city. And I was so focused on, okay, this is when the interview starts. This is when the train is. This is when I can get back. Mm. And when my teaching was that I arranged someone to cover for exactly that period of time. But I had another class later that day. And it really would have been the kind of responsible thing to do is just to have taken the whole day off and not uh, not tried to rush back for that final tutorial. But because I was you know, really nervous and really afraid of, of you know, failure, I guess, um, I... I only arranged the cover for exactly the time that I was going to be away at the interview. And that's just, that's just a bit silly. Another aspect is that when we're, when we're afraid, we're much more likely to think that fearful events are going to be more likely to happen in the future. Mm -hmm. So when we're afraid, it makes fearsome events appear more likely to occur in the future, even when that's not accurate. And um, another way that uh, fear, I think, can be involved in risk assessment is to do with value. So take starvation. If, I, if I'm in a position where I don't have to fear starvation, it's not something that's going to happen to me anytime soon, I won't judge certain social policies as being high risk because that, that negative outcome is sort of just too far off for me to, to, to judge it as a, a genuine fear object. And that's important because when we're evaluating the riskiness of uh, social policies, we want to take into account these kind of morally relevant considerations. And emotions are an important way of detecting those morally relevant mm -hmm. considerations. Great. Okay. So some of your work focuses on different ways of thinking about what risk is. So this can get pretty technical pretty quickly, but let's let's take a stab at explaining your view of of what risk is. So we were discussing earlier a case of somebody nearly getting hit by a car. And can you say a little bit about that? Can you explain this example and say a little bit about how it motivates your understanding of, of what risk is? Right. Um, so first off, I should say this isn't, uh, this isn't my account of risk. This is the account of risk um, that's being defended by Lee John Whittington, the philosopher. And his thought experiment was developed at Edinburgh. We were both working at Edinburgh at the time. And in the, the Edinburgh student campus, right around the library and where a lot of the teaching buildings are located, there's this lane. Um, it's cobbled. It's pretty short. It's really pedestrianized. And this in-between classes is just full of students going back and forth and lectures going back and forth. But everybody knows about the street because it's the street where you almost always get hit by a car. The speed limit is really high there. And... Um, cars just kind of barrel through without much consideration for student well-being, and you're always seeing people kind of darting out of the way. And the idea is that on the the way that risks are calculated in industry, and the way that a lot of philosophers talk about risk, is that it's all about probabilities. So, what are the odds or the the likelihood of of someone getting getting hit in order to judge is that a high risk road? And what this street. Um, makes us think about is that if, if say I got really concerned about the street, I said, look, this is just not safe. And I went to, you know, to the university and said, look, I think we should get some lights up in here or something like that. 
if they carried out a formal risk assessment, the probability of someone getting hit would be really low or zero because no one had ever actually gotten hit. And so what, what this account of risk wants to do is say it's not just about probabilities, but possibilities as well. So how easily could somebody have gotten hit? How many near misses are we getting here? Um, and the idea there is that purely probabilistic accounts of risk, where it's just about the statistics, don't capture the full story. Um, they don't capture these near misses. I mean, you, you wouldn't want your child playing on that street, even though no one has ever gotten hit before. It seems like it's a risky road, and that's because of these kind of nearby near misses. Yeah, okay, good. So just to be clear, like on the probabilistic account of risk, the riskiness of this street would be determined by, say, the number of pedestrians that get hit by a car divided by the number of total pedestrians that actually pass through the street. And on the the sort of near miss or possibility based conception of risk that you're talking about, even if nobody actually gets hit by a car on this street, it could still be risky because lots of people almost got hit by a car. So they could very easily have been hit by cars. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's it exactly. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. So can you say a bit about what sorts of effects this rethinking of what risk is like should have downstream like when you adopt this possibility based or as philosophers like to say modal conception of risk how does that change how you make decisions or how you for the purposes of your work structure legal institutions or legal proceedings right um so the where i think this could really lead to some sort of actual changes is in first off how we think about how emotions impact risk risk assessment. So if we had a purely probabilistic account of risk, um, we we would look at you know if I'm if I'm feeling afraid or if I'm feeling uh, really angry. Let's talk about legal risks. If I'm really sort of angry at what's happened here, um, we we have a body of research about how anger is going to impact calculating odds and calculating the mathematics of the probabilities. And that maybe, you know, when we're in certain kinds of emotion states, we're just going to be really bad at doing math. And so we, we, we know about this already. But if what we want to do with our risk assessment is also to take into account imagining possible situations that even if they're probabilistically unlikely are, you know, nearby type, near misses type possibilities, if we're supposed to also be not just doing math, but imagining possible mm. scenarios, emotions play an entirely different role in that kind of procedure. Our ability to imagine possible situations is impacted a lot more by negative emotions like fear that make us really kind of closed-minded when it comes to uh, imagination. So in the case of fear, for the reasons that you described earlier, like fear can throw off our assessments of probabilities. Um, and so if we adopt a probabilistic conception of risk, then fear would lead us to misjudge risk. But if we adopt this possibility-based conception of risk, then fear might help us sort of imagine more vividly the, the different possible outcomes 
and that's that that's not that's not throwing off our sense of what the possible outcomes are that's putting us in better touch with them it's making us more somehow more rational or more circumspect in our judgments of of what what risks sort of attend any situation so is that is that like a fair description of it's almost right except for reverse so fear might actually make us be not so bad at calculating mathematical probabilities but Mm. fear makes us horrible at imagination at imaginative tasks so the idea there is that you know when 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 we're afraid this ability to imagine possibilities is is restricted it's just the, just the opposite. <laughs> oh, okay, great. So I got it exactly wrong. Um, <laughs> um, so other emotions besides fear would have this effect of making us sort of better able to imagine possibilities. But fear is fear is different from other emotions in that respect. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Why is that, do you think? What's the difference between fear and, say, happiness or anger or sadness that throws off this connection between the emotion and our accurate assessment of what's possible. What's what, what makes fear special in that respect? Do you know what I mean? I mean, I think, I think our, we're, we're just really weird creatures, but <laughs> if we, if we think about, you know, what fear is, if, if what's involved in it, kind of an episode of fear is that we're thinking there's a, you know, potentially imminent destruction coming to us, um, you know, that something, something painful or destructive is kind of in the nearby future. Um, it does make sense to focus on how do I get out of the way of this, you know, tiger, not mm. what are my plans for next weekend? Um, <laughs> you know, focusing on the, on the, the task at hand and the immediate situation right. does make sense to get away from dangerous objects. But when we're, when we're sitting down and trying to evaluate the riskiness of some potential new technology, we have time to to, to speculate and mm. um, to, to kind of imagine possible implications. And for that, exactly being happy is, is more conducive to that type of imagination. That's really, really interesting. Um, I think this is a good sort of natural segue to another sort of topic that I wanted to discuss, which is, you know, this the $64,000 philosophical question of any topic, which is like, what what is, in this case, fear? So it seems to me that like, fear, it, it comes in at least two flavors, like, fear can be more, more like a mood that's not really about anything or directed at anything. So, like, if I read a scary story and for the next couple of hours or whatever, I'm just sort of jumpy and hypervigilant and sort of always looking for, like, you know, scary things around me, um, it doesn't seem to me that I'm afraid of anything. I'm just sort of fearful. Um, on the other hand, fear can be very much about things. It can have what philosophers like to call intentionality so it can be directed at particular things so i can be afraid of rats or snakes or death so what's the relationship between these two types of fear the more mood like and the more intentional or directed yeah so some people might disagree with me on this but the the in philosophy of emotion we've got different camps set up and and i'm and i'm in the camp that would say if we're asking this this question, what what is an emotion? What makes an emotion an emotion and not? 
a mood or a, a character trait or um, or a, a pathology. What what is an emotion? Mm-hmm. Um, how I and some others understand this is that what's specific about making it an emotion and not a mood is is having this intentionality. This it has an of an object that mm-hmm. for it to be fear as opposed to um, maybe some kind of general sense of unease mm-hmm. um, is that I'm always afraid of the snake or the spider or death. Um, whereas if I'm in that, that kind of mood that you described after reading the scary story, maybe you could say you're in a fearful mood mm-hmm. where that's characterized by exhibiting fear from time to time at, oh, what's under the bed or, oh, what's, what was that noise? And then those mm-hmm. are gen- so genuine cases of fear. But what, what, ha- what was sort of happening to you that night was that maybe you were in a kind of fearful mood and that's why it doesn't have that those particular objects like like the fear of what's under the bed. Great, that's 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 helpful. Um, okay, so fear is an emotion and not a mood, and part of what makes it an emotion is that it is about something. So it's only <laughs> it's only you know bona fide fear if it's fear of rats or snakes or death or whatever. But clearly other emotions are also intentional. They're also about things. So I can be happy about, uh, you know, a promotion or, you know, a party that's coming up or something. Um, <laughs> so so fear, has, so fear has this intentionality, this aboutness. Um, but what is it that distinguishes fear from other emotions? What makes a, what makes a particular emotion a, a case of fear rather than anger or sadness or, what, or whatever? Yeah. So yeah. So so if all emotions have this this intentionality, this aboutness, I can point to what am I angry at? Who am I disgusted by? Um, that what that object is is going to be at least partly uh, essential to it being a fear uh, episode as opposed to a, a an anger episode. And so and this is what philosophers argue about about what is that? What is that object and what is that kind of that content there and the the view that I take I I'm sort of inspired by by Aristotle here so it's his definition that I've been tinkering with and what he says is that fear is a kind of pain or disturbance due to a mental picture of some destructive or painful evil in the nearby future mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot kind of built into that definition but we get at least sort of, sort of three types of things so first off that the fact that it's a pain or a disturbance. So there is going to be some physiological elements about fear that will be helpful in distinguishing it from, I don't know, ecstasy or boredom, mm-hmm. um, that it is going to have sort of painful content to it. But then that, that object, what it's of, is that it's of this um, something that we perceive as, we judge as potentially being destructive or painful to us and also in the nearby future, um, so I can uh, I think that that nearby future is important. First off, because it has to be about the future. You can't be afraid of something in the past, mm-hmm. and and some people some people find this um, find this difficult. But when you think about it, I can't I can't think of actual cases of fear about the past. Whenever I think about it, it keeps being well. If I was afraid that I left the oven on, I'm actually kind of afraid of coming home to a burnt down flat or something uh-huh. like that. The, the fear object is still in the future. Um, and the other element there is that, I mean, we were talking about death 
and um, it's Halloween, so death is appropriate. Uh-huh. But I mean, we do know we'll all die. That's that's definitely going to happen. It's probably going to suck. Um, but <laughs> I'm not constantly in a state of fear of this thing that I this really 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 destructive thing that's going uh-huh. to happen to me someday. Um, it has to be relatively kind of close by for for it to be fear. I might have um sort of a, a general phobia of, of of death by spider, but if it's fear, it's something that I think might happen pretty soon. Huh. Yes. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay, so th- there are well, actually, there's there's two follow up questions that occur to me. So, like, one is that well, you know, if I'm like a young guy who doesn't intend to die anytime soon, and I am afraid of my own death, which uh, you know, guilty as charged, I think. Um, does that make that fear somehow like irrational or pathological? Yeah. Okay. Well. I mean, I guess if we, we can get into the rationality a little bit later, but yeah. this idea of, I mean, the tricky thing in here, is here is that we don't know. <laughs> you don't know when you're going to die. So it really might be nearby. Um, sorry to say. <laughs> yeah, so, thanks so a lot. Yeah, right. yeah, no, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll try not to encourage it. But so if you, if, if say you knew, you know, the gods came down and they said, you've got 50 years left. And yet you felt kind of extreme pain and, 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 and upset about this, this imminent or this not so imminent thing that might be a, a, a kind of a fault of your, of your reasoning there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I, I figured it out, Ian, that the reason why you're afraid is that, you, yeah, you just don't know. It is a sort of live possibility that, that you might die sooner than later. So I think your fear is fine <laughs> as grim as that is. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Th- uh, Thank you. I think. I think. I think the response to that is thank you. Um, well, the, the the second follow up before and yeah, I do want to turn to questions about rationality, sort of in earnest in a second. And this is, you know, Halloween related. I think if part of what it is to fear something is to have a kind of pain or disturbance, that seems to make a sort of puzzle out of the fact that sometimes we go out of our way to be afraid of things. Like we go to haunted houses and watch horror movies and like, you know, at least some people do stuff that's like actually scary on Halloween rather than just like eating lots of candy. Um, so how, how is that? I mean, how, 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 how could we um, want to be scared if fear is a type of pain? Yeah. I think I think this is a really uh, interesting element of of fear um, or or any kind of painful emotions that we that that we might intentionally uh, induce in ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I'm not even sure how to wrap my mind around this properly. But the idea I've been trying to think about recently is about pain and its value, mm-hmm. and there there can be some cases where. Not just that you know the pain is pleasurable, but it might just be something like that. Mm-hmm. That certain small amounts of pain are actually kind of nice. Um, so it could be that. But if it if it's anything more than that, it could be that that there's something, if not pleasurable, just valuable about the pain, and that explains why we want to seek it out. So it could be maybe like aesthetically valuable to experience sort of painful mm-hmm. fear uh, to watch a scary film or um, or kind of live out a scary film by going to a haunted house. Um, so there could be something like that going on, that the pain is either pleasurable or valuable in another way. And sometimes some of these things that we do on, on Halloween or, or it's a safe 
environment. I mean, we're not we're not jumping off buildings. We're we're we're, we're maybe just jumping in the air a little bit when when the the you know I don't know the baddie knocks on the door. It's a safe, controlled environment where the the, the pain is not going to get too great. Yeah, right, right. And all of the scary things that it seems to me that most people seek out are things that aren't actually dangerous, like watching horror movies or, you know, maybe going on roller coasters or something, maybe where you're like actually strapped in. I mean, people don't go on roller coasters and like not strap themselves in. Um, so so let's let's return to that question of, of rationality then. This is one of the questions about emotions that I just sort of most interesting to me. Um is like what, if anything, makes an emotion rational or irrational. So like one way of sort of setting up the puzzle for me is that it's clear enough what makes a belief rational or irrational. A rational belief is more or less a belief that's formed in the sort of proper response to or in the proper relation to evidence. But mm, like... Yes. Um, it's a little strange to say that uh, fear is formed in response to evidence. Like ed the concept of evidence seems sort of neither here nor there here. So yeah, can can you say a little bit about what you think might make a case of fear rational or or irrational? Like what what's the difference between a fear and like a phobia or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think this is really interesting as well, um, and. And I think unpacking these questions can be really useful when we're talking about emotions in the law or political emotions where we might need to be kind of accountable for, for the emotions that we have. And I guess my way of thinking has been shaped at the beginning by this, this very common cultural script that we've got reason and emotion. And this is a big philosophical tradition. We've got reason and emotion and the two are at odds. And when we need to be good, rational decision makers, when we need to be exercising our reason, you know, as best as possible, eliminate the emotions, shut them down, cool them off because they, you know, get in the way of, of proper reasoning or, or, or just reasoning full stop. And what a lot of philosophers of emotion are thinking about now is that that dichotomy is just a false dichotomy. Emotions aren't opposed to reason. And the way that we think about this does bring in beliefs. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Um, and what I think is helpful here is to think about a distinction between uh, something being irrational and being irrational. Mm -hmm. And emotions can be irrational. So I can... I could be afraid for no good reason, or, or like you earlier, I could be uh, afra more afraid than is warranted given given the evidence, mm -hmm. um, and and that can be irrational be, because uh, so my reasons for either feeling the emotion in general or for feeling it to the degree that I am um, just aren't connected to reality in the, the the right way. So the other side of that would be that emotions aren't irrational like an involuntary leg spasm mm -hmm. that's a rational you can't kind of blame me for my involuntary leg spasm and I am like oh I, I, I did it because of this reason um yeah. there's a biological reason but it's not it's not the same kind of reasons as how humans talk about their their voluntary actions so the point about that distinction is that emotions can be irrational but it's not because they're emotions it's because, and I like the way that Anthony Duff uh, explains this line, emotions can be irrational, not because they're emotions, but because our rational grasp of the world is fallible. Mm -hmm. um, and just like you say, our beliefs can be irrational. 
as well when they're just not properly grounded in reality. When our emotions just aren't properly grounded in reality, they can be critiqued as being irrational, but they can also be rational when they're grounded in, in that evidence and in the reality. And I think even though emotions can be irrational, we don't really need to despair because the fact that they can be rational, just like beliefs, enables us to do lots of interesting things with them, like assess them and educate them. And we can kind of figure out where exactly the problem is going on. If it's in the fact that, you know, I was afraid of that bunny because I thought that all bunnies were kind of murderous creatures. And and that explains my fear. I just need to be, you know, to explain to that that most rabbits are pretty docile then just just to make sure i understand then so fears can be irrational when they're they're totally involuntary they're not the sort of thing you could be held accountable for in any like meaningful way or something like that or they're not things that you do or your own actions or anything like that but fears are irrational when they're based on, in some sense, beliefs or judgments that that are irrational. So the irrationality of the of the fear is sort of derived from its relationship to some irrational irrational belief or judgment. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I was I was trying to think of what would be a a nice irrational fear. So that could be something of when you just jump, uh, you hear the loud noise mm. and you and you jump. I haven't had time to to go through the process of deciding even what that sound came from and how dangerous it is. Uh, Like that might be a kind of irrational fear-like response to just like the random jumping or screaming. Um, But if I, if in my, my fear I'm judging, you know, that rabbit is going to kill me and and I'm, I'm having this fear that that's irrational because I've made a judgment there. That's probably not not really true. Good, good, yeah. Yeah, although as I think of it now, I summed up your remarks by saying about irrationality by saying that irrational fears aren't the sorts of things that you could be held accountable for or responsible for. But as I think of it now, I'm not sure that that's the case. So like, so like maybe I'm like startled in those irrational ways that are also like racially discriminatory, say. So like I'm, ne- I'm never startled by, you know, white people appearing in the doorway and I'm always startled by people of color appearing in the doorway. And so you might say, well, it's not it's not a product of reflection or of considered judgment or anything like that, but it's still the sort of thing that you could say, hey, like, you know, maybe chill out with the like <laughs> like racially discriminatory startle response a little bit. Like you you should you should do something about that. You, you do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Um and it does seem that there's that there's something going on in that case that is not optimal mm-hmm. morally the fact that you're not having these the these responses equally or 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 sort of in in response to the the reality of the situation i mean what's what's really depressing about that type of example is that if if these irrational responses are the kinds of things that we haven't thought about it we couldn't kind of give an account out loud of, of, of why we acted the way we did. That shows us how deeply ingrained that kind of mm. um, view about about uh, other social groups has gotten to the point where you're demonstrating this without even thinking about it. That might be something to to sort of I guess. So who's to blame, or like who's 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 morally culpable in in the irrational situations? It might be more of a 
uh, a social question of why are these things so so deeply ingrained that we don't even think about them and, and demonstrate them. Right, yeah. And so blame might not be the appropriate response to an irrational, but like somehow unfairly discriminatory fear, but some other sort of like technique of social control or something might be appropriate. That's in, that's interesting. I'm you know, worth thinking about. Halloween is coming up. Do they have, you're in the UK, do they have Halloween in the UK? Oh, yes, yes, they, they do, we just don't do them as much as, uh, as North America, but um, yeah, Halloween, Halloween's just one thing. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I found out that, like, I grew up in a neighborhood in Brooklyn that was, like, very Halloween friendly, and I remember when I found out that not everybody had the same Halloween experience, where, like, you couldn't come home with bags and bags of candy, I just... I I pitied children all over the world. Uh, anyway, you know, so I want to so I want to ask I want to ask about Halloween. I mean, like one so one of the things that strikes me about Halloween and that I think makes it just sort of mysterious is that it revolves around all these sort of like conventionalized like scary things. So like mm-hmm. jack o' lanterns or sort of cartoonish skeletons or vampires that aren't actually scary and you know i i wonder whether those sorts of conventionalized scary things serve to kind of like inoculate us against like actually scary things like actual violence or disease or death or something yeah so like what is what does your work on fear sort of tell you about halloween i mean does it give you any does it give you any kind of insight or understanding of like why we have these sorts of rituals or ceremonies or public celebrations of fear? Yeah. Oh, there's so much that could be said about this. What you said about um, these kind of innocent looking scary things Mm -hmm. like witches, but they're pink or something or yeah, Yeah. like a jack-o'-lantern, like, you know, a scary face, but but ooh, it's in a vegetable, like yeah. not not that terrifying. Right, or um, like a baby dressed a, up as a witch or something like that, you know. Where it's yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Or, or or the fact that you know we for the children, then this kind of coming home with bags of candy. It's like I've had a scary experience, but at every door, I, don't worry, I get some sweets. Uh-huh. Like this kind of oh gosh, I mean now you're getting me thinking. Okay, Halloween would be a lot more interesting if we kind of disbanded all the silly elements and just had a kind of night of of just pure terror where we had actual. <laughs> like murderers on the loose that would be an interesting <laughs> that, would, that would be an interesting social ritual yeah, yeah. um and we but, and as but, far as i know i mean well i maybe there are societies somewhere out in the world that have those sorts of like public celebrations of like actual like good reasons to be afraid like public question. celebrations of like you know wanton violence or something like that um <laughs> that great. but uh but yeah yeah, but as far as I know, but like Halloween isn't alone, right? Like Dia de los Muertos is like also a similar sort of like sort of glossy, slightly cute, you know, like celebration of 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 death. You know, I, I sorry, I cut you off. I cut you off. Oh yeah, well no, I mean, uh, there's just, yeah, there's a lot to say about this. That I mean, th- this question of does the fact that we do a kind of fear light on Halloween with all the you know baby witches and and vegetables 
that are carved to be scary looking. Um, does that does that change the way that we might respond to you know what you were kind of saying is like actually you know, fearsome objects like like disease and violent uh, violent animals? I don't think that it does sort of make us less appropriately afraid of the appropriate fear objects. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, but it, it seems having or kind of practicing fear in response to these not quite so scary things shouldn't affect how we respond to something that we know is actually mm-hmm. uh, actually dangerous is, is actually a threat but then it's this question of kind of like from uh what we talked about a bit earlier about voluntarily putting yourself in a, in a fearful position so what's like socially valuable about practicing fear in these kind of nice mildly safe conditions. Mm-hmm. And so I can say a little bit more about that. But one thing that it seems like this incongruity between something that could be scary in one context and something that's definitely not scary, like the I go to the haunted house, but I get some candy. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I'm dressed up like a skeleton, but I've got all this nice makeup on. And I look kind of elegant. And mm-hmm. um, um, that kind of juxtaposition of the emotions that's going on, scary thing, fear, but you know, tasty candy, yum, pleasure, uh-huh. um, and that and that there's that there's something kind of safe about experiencing and fun about experiencing the two emotions at the same time. Yeah. Um, but this this question of public ceremonies and and does Halloween sort of fall under one of these 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 public ceremonies that because of its emotions ends up being you know, politically valuable? I think definitely there. So coming back to to, to Plato, my inspiration. Plato, he, he felt strongly that fear of death um, shouldn't be a thing, that fear of death gets us into all kinds of trouble. Uh, and one of the kind of interesting things there is that he, he thought fear of death is problematic, um, not just because it maybe makes us cowardly, but that if we think of death as this painful, destructive thing to be feared, that it seems like any injustice could be excusable in order to avoid it. Mm. But, and, and, and I think we, we, this is a fairly natural thought to have, that in order to save a life, if that means I have to do something that, that would be otherwise morally or um, legally problematic, but I'm doing it to save a life, that kind of excuses otherwise bad behavior. And he didn't want us to think that, that there was this kind of trump card of, that would excuse otherwise dangerous behavior for ourselves. Yeah. The you know, first thing that comes to mind for me in that connection is like the ways that police who kill unarmed black men often describe themselves as fearing for their lives, even though they have very little reason to. So when the cops killed Tamir Rice, who was a little boy, I mean, they 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 went out of their way to justify their actions and su- successfully in the in the eyes of the law. I'm, somehow uh to justify their actions by saying well you know he was a 12 year old boy but he really looked like a like a like a big scary guy or something like they looked old for his age and you know yeah sorry i'm i'm free i'm free associating but like it seems it seems to me that if that insight isn't plato at least then plato is onto something because those sorts of political uses of fear or legal uses of fear strike me as incredibly dangerous yeah I mean, de- literally deadly. You know, that's, but, yeah. that's exactly the, the kind of injustice that, that Plato was worried about um, cropping up if people kind of thought that, you know, 
death of you know, themselves or death of somebody else is, is, is so important that it's, it's okay to do these, these things. That's exactly what mm -hmm. he would be worrying about. Um, and so he'd think, okay, we've got, we as a, as a society have got to do something to manage the fear of death that we do have, all have mm -hmm. at least a little bit of. And he, he, he thought that if we're kind of constantly worried about our own security and our own safety and just getting through the day and being able to just not dying, uh, if we're focusing so much on that, that's, that's going to take up a lot of mental energy and, and physical energy and resources just trying to stay alive. And that gets in the way of focusing on other sort of more more morally valuable activities like, like human flourishing or or doing philosophy or or having you know meaningful relationships with other human beings or or animals. That focusing too much on not dying um, is going to get in the way of that kind of project. So he thought this was this is all kinds of all kinds of problems. Um, and for that reason, he he explicitly tries to say that uh, as a, as a city we should foster. Kind of tried to foster appropriate attitudes towards death, and the example of the the Dia de las Muertas is kind of if this is, yep, we can go. You know, people die, and our loved ones are are not with us anymore. This doesn't have to be a scary thing. This can be a time to, you know, remember what we what we loved about them and and the the memories that we have with them. And so, you know, to to the extent that that Halloween is presenting us with death sometimes, and and our our mortality and the, the types of things that could go wrong in the world. Um, if that, if that maybe like potentially through that, that sort of playful juxtaposition of, of, you know, I get candy, but, but it's in the shape of a skull. Um, if, if that helps us to think about death in a more appropriate way, um, that he would see that as a social good. And, and I think he has to be right about that, that, that these public ceremonies or, or public traditions that can help us, Ensure, or try to make our emotions be sort of, you know, what we were talking about before, more grounded mm -hmm. in reality as opposed to sort of fantasy, um, would be would be a valuable sort of political project. That is that is really really interesting. Um, well, you know, I guess we should wrap up. But uh, th thank you so much. This has been a lot of a lot of fun. I I really enjoyed this. Well, good. I'm glad fear fear and death has been fun for you. This is, <laughs> this is good. But thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, I put a spell on you. Because of mine. So there you go. That was me and Lauren Ware. If you want to find out more about Lauren's work on fear, she's editing a book called The Moral Psychology of Fear. Keep your ear to the street for that one. I'm excited to check it out. You might have noticed that Sophie Murphy... My co-host on the podcast and the podcast's co-founder wasn't on this episode. She is, for now, back in Ireland. But, fingers crossed, she'll be stateside soon. Also, just a heads up, if you're in Brooklyn, the next Brooklyn Public Philosophers event is coming up on November 15th at the Brooklyn Public Library at Grand Army Plaza. Corey Robin will be talking with Eddie Gloud about the new edition of his book, The Reactionary Mind. It's about the history of conservative political thought. And as always, we're taking questions for the Ask a Philosopher episodes of the podcast. You can find the submissions form on our website, bkpp.tumblr.com. Hit us up. Thanks for listening, and happy Halloween, everybody. Stop the things you do.